I'm your host, Annie Bowles, and this is News Du Jour. Hey, you guys, thank you so much with your patience while I was traveling and, you know, taking off for my birthday. Today, I have a bonus episode for you guys, and it is a little bit delayed, so I apologize. We had about a dozen mishaps coming back from our trip, and if you guys follow me on stories, you know it has been a rough, a rough 48 hours for us in general as a family, but I really appreciate your patience. Long story short, Today, we're going to discuss what Senate Bill 1470 is all about. What are the specifics of this legislation? What will it do? What case inspired it? And then also, we're going to dive into who Colleen McCarty is and what Appleseed is, because this is the group that's really built this legislation, put it forth. And this is the second iteration of this legislation. So there's a lot to go over here. But today is an especially exciting day to be sharing this episode with you guys because as of yesterday, we passed our bill out of Senate Judiciary Committee. I literally got home from New Orleans, (laughs) wasn't even in our house for 30 minutes. I changed clothes, brushed my teeth, and literally got right back in the car and drove up to Capitol Hill because I know how important it is to physically show up on Capitol Hill. They look to see people showing up in numbers and seeing that constituents care about things. So to me, it was really important to physically show up. And lucky for me, I got there right as they had passed it 11 to 0 unanimously. So again, this is a piece a piece of legislation that is completely bipartisan. This is something that both sides of the aisle really support. And to sum it up in a really succinct way, Senate Bill 1470 would lesser sentencing for anyone who has been abused at the time of their crime or up to a year prior or require judges essentially to take that into account. Did this affect their committing this crime? Because a lot of times what we see when a victim has been abused They're forced to carry drugs. They're forced to steal things. They're forced to defend themselves. And long story short, after they've committed these crimes, they often face really serious sentencing, especially here in Oklahoma, where we have some of the harshest sentencing laws in the country and the highest incarceration rates overall in the country, as well as the highest female incarceration rates in the country. And there is a huge connection between our being number one in domestic violence and being number one in female incarceration. We know that those two things are linked. And this bill is set to potentially lessen sentencing for hundreds of women who are already serving really lengthy prison sentences that had to do with their abuse. So we're going to discuss one case, the April Wilkins case. There's also a podcast on the subject called Panic Button because April was literally so afraid of her abuser that she wore a panic button around her neck in the 90s, you guys, that would call the police if her abuser was around. And she had to call the police many, many times to try and defend herself from her abuser and ultimately had to defend herself herself because that's what it often comes down to. She's now serving a life sentence for defending herself against her known abuser. So April is someone that we are really trying to champion, but there's hundreds of women in Oklahoma who have similar situations that this law would help reduce sentencing for. So Without further ado, I'm going to go ahead and introduce Colleen McCarty to you guys, and we'll get into the details of Senate Bill 1470. I am so excited to introduce Colleen McCarty, founding executive director at Oklahoma Appleseed. 
She is leading the fight for SB 1470 that Sugar-Free Media and News Du Jour is endorsing and helping to champion. So I wanted to chat about all of the specifics of this bill with her so that you guys are fully informed and have a place to sort of direct people to get all the details. Let's jump in. Hi, Colleen. Why don't you start by telling us where you were born and raised and how did you become an attorney? So I was born and raised in Tulsa, Oklahoma at St. Francis Hospital, and I became an attorney actually in the middle of life, so I didn't go straight uh, through from undergrad. I was in corporate communications and training, uh, and I was a young mom. I had a four-year-old and an eight-month-old when I decided to go back to TU Law. (laughs) Yeah, and I did law school with a young family, which was an adventure, and then I passed the bar in 2020, and here we are. Amazing. Why don't you tell us about Oklahoma Appleseed and your role there? Sure. So Appleseed Network is a national network of legal justice centers around the country. There are there are 18 centers. There's one in Mexico City. There's one in Hawaii trying to get a trying to get a transfer pass to that one. (laughs) Um, But the network was formed in the 1990s by a bunch of Harvard law grads that had gone out and created these like storied legal careers. And then they came back together at a class reunion and decided they wanted to uh, use the law for good. They felt like the the purpose of the law was getting lost and making money. And um, they knew after their long careers that there's so much good you can do with the law, but you have to, you know, you have to be dedicated to that. And so they founded the Appleseed Network. It's called that because it's like Johnny Appleseed, like spreading Mm -hmm. the seeds of justice. It's kind (laughs) of cute and kind of 90s. Um, And then... Oklahoma Appleseed was founded in 2022. Um, It's the newest center. We're the baby center right now. Uh, And our focuses are on criminal and juvenile justice, education justice, and election justice. So what those are basically, um, criminal and juvenile justice is just making a more fair and just system for the courts. Um, Education justice is making sure every kid in Oklahoma has access to free and adequate public education and all of the things that come along with that. And then election justice is making sure every eligible voter gets to the polls. And so that was what our board decided were some of the most systemic issues facing our state. And so we use several tools to advance change in those issues. Some of it's legislative advocacy at the Capitol. We do um, litigation when we feel like there's no way forward other than to just go to court. And then we do community organizing and legal research on the issues that we are passionate about. So it's kind of complicated, but once I explain it, everyone's like, oh, I get it. <laughs> yeah, well, maybe you can help us like connect the dots between like you going to law school and then ending up in this line of work. Like, Did you go to law school with the intention of doing criminal justice work, or how did you find your way there? even in 2017 there wasn't really a market for what we call public interest law now here in Oklahoma Um, there were two choices I knew I wanted to do criminal justice from the very beginning it was something that was a passion of mine that I wanted to understand at a deeper level I just felt like I love crime I not crime I love like studying crime the causes of crime why people have criminal behavior I love true crime we'll talk about that in a little bit yeah um, and it's always been a fascination of mine and so I went actually to law school to become a district attorney I mm-hmm. thought I wanted to work on the enforcement side um, solve crimes investigate crimes put but put the bad guys away I looked at it from a very black and white perspective back then mm. and I thought that um, there was the problem with the system was there weren't enough good people doing prosecution, um, which I now don't think is actually true. Mm. Uh, I worked in the district attorney's office here in Tulsa. I worked in one in Wagner, which I really loved. And I worked in the U S attorney's office here in the Northern district. I really loved prosecution and I probably would have gone on to become a DA if it didn't always result usually in putting the person in prison. Um, I felt like I was, expanding on the circles of harm instead of reducing the harm of Mm -hmm. what had happened to that person to that victim and so often we would tell the victims you know we're doing this you're going to feel better once the person goes to prison once we get the conviction and then they didn't and it was a very hollow type of feeling and so I left I found myself kind of like oh no there are only two jobs in the criminal justice system there's being a defense attorney or a public defender and there's being a prosecutor and never the twain shall meet and there is no other job so I was like kind of scrambling 
the last few years of law school, like, I know I want to work in criminal justice, but I just don't know if there's a job for me here. Mm -hmm. And I ended up going to work at a special project called Project Commutation, which is still happening. And I got to help uh, aid in the reduction of sentences for people who had 780 crimes. So if you remember, in 2016, Oklahoma passed State Question 780, which reduced drug possession from a felony to a misdemeanor and several other low-level crimes. Well, there were people still serving prison time in Oklahoma on those crimes, like for 20 Mm. years, 30 years, I've seen some people on life for those types of low-level crimes. And so we had to go before the Pardon and Parole Board. We got to go before the Pardon and Parole Board. I got to represent about 18 people that first time around Christmas of 2018. And I I and several other law students did, and, and they were all approved for sentence reductions. And it was like this cresting wave of of reform happening in the state where we recognized that the way we were doing things, it just wasn't working. That The sentences were just too long. It was too expensive. It was a waste of human potential. And so that was kind of like my introduction to what we call public interest law on the criminal law side. Mm -hmm. And then I got to go work at Oklahomans for criminal justice reform, which is a statewide nonprofit that works on legislative change and, I had a lot of fun doing that. I got to be their deputy director, and then I was approached by Bennett Magnuson, who's the executive director of the National Appleseed Network, to start the Appleseed here. And it's been a huge whirlwind, exciting, fun, exhausting, Mm -hmm. Sisyphusian, if you will, (laughs) Um, but ultimately so glad I got to do this work, and and I get to do this work every day. I wake up like, I can't believe this is my my job. So how did you arrive at doing the podcast for April Wilkins and what is her story? I love telling the story of how we came across across this case. It's super emotional for me because it was right when we were starting Appleseed. I didn't have any projects. So um, I was sort of looking for what our impact was going to be. I knew we needed to work in criminal and juvenile justice. I just was sort of like examining the space and what needed to be changed and my friend Leslie Briggs who I went to law school with approached me after she saw an article in the paper about Appleseed opening Mm -hmm. and she said hey would you ever work on this case I got I got introduced by this case by a lady named Ashlyn Faulkner she's my friend she's an artist her best friend growing up is the niece of a lady named April Wilkins who's in prison Now, I get approached by cases and people from prison all the time. It's not something that's, like, new to me. I just got a letter today from prison from someone I don't know. Mm -hmm. So it's not, like, something that I take lightly um, because I know we only have so much capacity and also I hear a lot of stories. um, And I go and I check the facts, and a lot of times the stories that I hear aren't always 100% true or verifiable. And so I try not to get excited when I hear stuff. Especially after 25 years, things kind of get um, through the telephone line, you know, distorted or contorted. And so we found, um, we got to talk with with Amanda and Ashlyn. They formed this group called Free April Wilkins. And they had a little bit of a social media presence, but not much. And April had kept a blog um, that she has Amanda post out in the real world. And so I started perusing through the blog and reading the timeline and like, the thing about April that's amazing and that I don't think anybody really appreciates and, and Amanda, her niece too, is that they're incredible documenters. Like uh, every single thing that she alleges is documented by fact, by a piece of paper. Well, wasn't, am I correct in remembering that she was a scientist? She was a prosthetist. So, and she's also, um, what is it when you, like a nutritionist. So she's a very healthy person. Mm -hmm. Uh, and I'll get into what happened here in a second, but yeah, she used to do prosthetic limbs in the nineties. She was like the guy who made Luke Skywalker's hand. Like she was him, but in the 1990s, that just seems to me to be a person that like would document a lot of things. I would like be focused on details and things like that. Yes. She very much is. She's a super high IQ person. Um, she, she was advanced. She graduated three years early. Like she was, you know, academically advanced from very early on. And that's just part of her personality. But Amanda is a librarian. (laughs) So you you compile the two of them, their forces combined, and it's really (laughs) amazing. And so I start clicking on documents. I start reading trial transcripts. I start looking at this and that and parole letters and all the things. And Mm -hmm. every single thing about her case 
was verified. There was never a time I came across something that she had said or she experienced that wasn't true, which is a very rare experience for me coming from the post-conviction side. And so, you know, normally I can talk myself out of taking a case by looking at some of this stuff and like, oh, that's a bad fact. Oh, that's a bad fact. I can't uh, now or now I can't take it. Right. Mm -hmm. So I expected that to happen while I got in into the facts with April's case. And instead, I just really got obsessed with it and like just kept digging and digging and digging and reading and reading. And it is it is insane. Like it is really insane. And, um, we were, we were facing this legal problem with her case that essentially she had just gone up for commutation and been denied. She, she didn't have a parole hearing coming up for a long time. She's exhausted all of her appeals at the point when we started looking at her case and legally there was really nothing we could do. Mm -hmm. And even for me to say that is frustrating, like Mm -hmm. knowing that someone in her situation, there was nothing we could do. And I just kept going to bed at night thinking like there has to be something. Mm -hmm. And I've always been a true crime podcast listener. Yes. And, um, I can't at the same time as us taking, being more serious about taking her case, potentially, I started listening to a podcast called believe her, Mm. which is about a lady named Nikki Adamondo in New York. Mm -hmm. And it's incredible. The lady who does her name is Justine Vanderloon, and she's a journalist, and she goes really deep into it and really humanizes Nikki and her experience of trauma and flips the narrative of true crime on its head because it's like the woman lived, you know, every other true crime story. Yes. It's, it's about the gory, dead woman's body and what could we have done mm-hmm. to prevent it. And now we're, we're talking about, well, the woman lived, but she's in prison because those are the only two choices for women. You're dead or you're in prison. Right. In these situations. And Mm -hmm. so what happened with April's case is she was dating a man named Terry Carlton, who was the son of a famous car dealer here in Tulsa. His name's Don Carlton. And Terry was raised in wealth. He'd never been told no, really. Um, They traveled the world with all these trips for all of these car dealers. And um, he would use the woman coming to the dealership as like a way to meet girls Mm -hmm. and so he would have the salesman on the floor bring him any cute young girls coming to shop for cars and he met April that way so she was there shopping for a car she had just opened her prosthetics business her Mm -hmm. own clinic she was she had graduated from OSU she was a sorority girl um, pretty normal Oklahoma girl life she lived in Kellyville um, and they start this whirlwind romance and, you know, he takes her to Dallas on their first weekend on a private plane and, um, they go out to the clubs and popping bottles and, and just a lot of romancing and sort of love bombing type mm-hmm. of behavior. And April had a young son from a prior marriage at the time. And so he was, he would be with his dad and she would go, you know, out with Terry and, um, the first five or six months of the relationship were fine. And then he proposed to her around Christmas of the same year they met. And she said yes. And then things start to kind of deteriorate after they get engaged. Um, I don't want to tell the whole, whole story. But essentially, over the next two and a half years, she becomes a victim of very systemic and methodical abuse. Strangling, sexual uh, assaults. Um, she, She got hooked on meth because he introduced her to it. He would stalking, stalking, very, very bad stalking. So he would knock the doors down. He would take the doorknobs off. He would show up in the middle of the night and he had a very distinctive car sound because he loved cars because of the family being a car family. And so the neighbors would always know he was there. He would get there at like 2 a.m., start screaming and yelling, breaking stuff. And then, you know, they would call the police and he'd be gone before they got there. Mm -hmm. So it was like known in the community that he was treating her like this. And, you know, we can never verify this fact other than April telling it to us. But according to her, he would bribe the police. So he would say like $500 is how much it costs to buy a police officer in Tulsa. And what's important to understand, I think, in this story, which, by the way, all of this is documented in much greater detail on Panic Button podcast. That's Colleen's podcast with Leslie um, that she mentioned. But um, also, it's important to understand that the Don Carlton family pays for a lot of media ads in Tulsa. Tulsa is a really small, intimate community. And in that sense, they were kind of in bed with the media. So it was hard to get a story out. It was hard to get 
the police to take them seriously because again this is a really well-known you know a, a family with a name in powerful, Tulsa. powerful yes. yes yes and that comes into play later too like over and over um the final night the final altercation between the two of them uh is just this harrowing sort of back and forth back and forth her trying to get him she goes to his house um after he's had her involuntarily committed to two separate mental institutions over two months and um you know he's trying to get her to take drugs she doesn't want to take the drugs it's up and down he's she's trying to get him to go to sleep so she can leave she knows that if if she leaves he'll chase her he's done it before he's faster than her he's pulled her back inside by her hair before that was witnessed by the neighbors and so she's really just it's very survivor behavior and we talk about that on the podcast a lot but it's like it's counterintuitive to anyone with a logical bent right like why would you stay there why would you go to his house why would you do these Mm -hmm. things um and a lot of it is just this ptsd trauma reaction of not of thinking that your abuser is all all powerful that he's going to control everything that you do that if you wait for him to come find you you're just a sitting duck and so i might as well go to him and poke the bear because eventually it's going to come on me even worse if i don't Mm -hmm. and so um she is able to hide his gun in one of her back pockets. She had on like a biker vest and it's back in the nineties. It had these three bottles like pockets that were for water bottles on the back of the vest. And she hides the gun in one of those. And, um, she's downstairs cleaning his needles that he was using for intravenous drug use. And he comes up from behind her and puts the handcuffs on her hands. He puts handcuffs on her hands from behind. So she's handcuffed in front And then he's dragging her to the couch, telling her he's going to rape her and kill her. And this is our last night together and all of those kinds of really scary things. And she believed him. And when she he looked away for one second and she reaches behind her, grabs his gun. He turns around and sees her with the gun, becomes visibly enraged, starts lunging at her and she empties the clip and he is shot eight times. It's a tragic, tragic story that never should have ever gotten that far. And he, his life was ended that night and she was prosecuted for first degree premeditated murder within 24 hours. They filed the charges, which if you listen to true crime, like a lot of times it takes a lot longer to, um, find ground a first degree murder charge than 24 hours. But it just shows you that they really had no intent in believing that this wasn't an intentional murder. There was, she was, the deck was stacked against her from the very beginning and the fact that he was a powerful man, his father was powerful. Um, shortly after the murder, he started donating to the campaign of District Attorney Tim Harris, which all of that is documented. And then that sort of undue influence becomes the nail in the coffin, right? She goes before a jury. She had a credible claim of self-defense. She had a credible claim of battered women's self-defense. Mm-hmm. And it still doesn't matter. Uh, they convict her. They really don't believe her. And they feel that she should not have shot him so many times. Um, and they feel that she shouldn't have gone there that night. There are a lot of things that people think about her behavior. Mm-hmm. A lot of the magnifying glass always goes back on her, what you should have done differently, but she's been in Mabel Bassett correctional center for 26 years. Mm-hmm. Um, and she's gone up for parole four times, denied every time denied for commutation. She's really got no other pathway, mm-hmm. um, out other than doing something like what we're going to talk about with this bill. Yeah. So I definitely want to shed some light for anybody who's unfamiliar with true crime, but like, or domestic violence, domestic violence victims do return to their, you know, abuser for a lot of different reasons at different times. And I think it's actually so much more common than anyone understands that someone might go to their abuser and try to reason with them, especially if they're being stalked and try and, you know, just ask them to stop. I I don't think that that's unreasonable knowing what I've learned about true crime over the years, that Mm -hmm. this happens in pretty much every domestic violence situation at some point. So if you're someone who's familiar with that, you know, area of expertise, you understand this is totally normal behavior given the domestic violence that was so pervasive and the stalking that was so pervasive here and well-documented. But I feel like, you know, that's just something that the lay person wouldn't understand. And the jury members in April's case certainly did not understand that. No, it was 1998, 1999, Tulsa, Oklahoma. I mean, we didn't know anything about trauma. We didn't know anything about addiction. We didn't know anything about 
you know, love addiction or any of those things that we know a lot more about now and could have more easily explained some of these behaviors. And if she had been tried now, I 100% believe she would have been 100% acquitted. Same here. And not that I'm an expert the way that you are, but I like I do consume a lot of true crime. And I feel like this case is so cut and dry self-defense. And that's what's so maddening about it. But um, tell us a little bit about how you got from like, you know, doing this podcast to wanting to pass this bill, because I think, you know, maybe answer sort of like why you're not going to retry the case or like how we've exhausted all other options for April. Yeah. Um, Well, I'll tell you kind of how we got the idea about mm-hmm. the bill is is actually from that podcast believe her so mm-hmm. nikki adamondo was a similar case to april in new york and went away for a 19-year sentence where kids were very young uh, for fighting back arguably fighting back against her husband who was a very covert abuser mm-hmm. and no one believed that he was abusing her wow and um they found all this evidence on a secret Pornhub account that they had to introduce in her appeal for a shorter sentence of him you know, using her as a sex slave and things like that. Mm -hmm. So horrific, horrific case. Um, But she applied for resentencing under the New York Survivor Justice Act that they passed in 2019 and received relief, got her sentence shortened to, I think, nine years. Um, And so she's actually home now. She just got out last week, which is a huge, maybe two weeks ago, which is a huge, huge deal. There were so many advocates working on her behalf, but I just got this idea from that. Like, Maybe there is a way that we could go about this that's legislative because what happened after April got tried is, um, you know, she spent her, all of her family's money was spent on her defense attorney and there was no more money left for an appeals attorney. Um, so she got someone to do it pro bono. He actually left her in the middle of her first appeal and just didn't ever come back. So she ended up having to do it all herself pro bono, which I don't care how smart you are or how brilliant or how genius you are. Um, You are not going to be able to to navigate the ins and outs of a criminal appeal on a murder case unless you are a trained attorney. I even have trouble doing any of that. And I am a trained attorney and I just don't have the experience. There's so many procedural hurdles. There's so many things you have to know about. And so she raised a bunch of grounds under that. And none of those the court found persuasive. Mm -hmm. Um, And when you appeal the first time that's really your time to bring everything uh, that you know about or could have known about even like, even if you could have known about it, but you didn't, if you don't bring it that first time it's done. Mm. And so uh, there were several things that she wished she could have brought, brought in that she did a post conviction relief application in the 2008, 2009 period of time that was unsuccessful. Um, And then she thought, I think she really thought through, the 2010s that she would get parole because she's eligible for for parole that hasn't happened um and so it was really like there were no other legal avenues there are limited amounts of legal avenues for anybody even if you can like show that you have dna that you didn't do it you still have to go through like a mazillion different steps to try to show the court like i didn't do it here's the proof and it's newly discovered it's not something i could have found earlier um, it's just our legal system really prioritizes finality over fairness. Yeah. And once it's done, it's done. And we don't really care if we got it wrong is yeah. the vibe. And that's what's so infuriating about it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think, well, first of all, I'm really saddened to hear that her family spent so much money on that defense attorney. Because if you listen to Panic Button podcast, you'll hear how he was, you know, just not the best. He really, he made some choices it was really more like not choices he made, but things he didn't do, like his lack of um, action in a couple different really key areas of her case that I think led to this conviction that she's facing now. But something else surprising that I heard in Panic Button podcast was how difficult it is to get parole in Oklahoma. I had no idea, like even if you check all the boxes. It's usually a no. I did not understand that. Do you have numbers to that at all? Like, um, I don't. I can probably pull some for you and put in the okay. show notes. Perfect. But um, parole grant rates are incredibly low, especially if you have what's termed a violent crime. Murder is, of course, a violent crime. Um, you have to get governor's approval after you go to the pardon and parole board. And, and you might be thinking, well, she probably has a horrible prison record. Actually, she's not had a prison misconduct since 2001. 
She's a model prisoner. She's created programs for other prisoners around physical health. There's one called PHI, Physical Health Institute. She runs a freaking like five miles around the yard every day. Uh, <laughs> she never gets into trouble. She never starts anything. I think she's going to be the president of the inmates council or something. She told me. <laughs> I'm obsessed with her. So there's, I, really you know, I love her so much. There's literally nothing she could do differently than what yeah. she's done. And she's, she is like basically at this point in my mind, like kind of like a political prisoner. Yeah. Because it's like, what else? That's what it feels like. Yes. Especially given like the family ties and the their ties to politics and the media. It definitely, it's it's such a sort of campaign against her in a lot of senses. Um, okay. So let's talk about the bill and how SB 1470 would help not only April, but also anybody else who's facing a similar situation. So the bill is is like I said, based on the New York New York New York Survivor Justice Act, um, and it was passed in 2019, and it created a basis for resentencing for survivors of domestic or interpersonal violence. Essentially, you there are two pieces to it. There's the piece that goes forward-looking from the date that the bill goes into effect. After that, if you're being prosecuted after that date, you can do what's called a mitigation hearing for your survivorship if this goes if this passes so then you've already been found guilty of whatever the crime is you can enter the evidence of the abuse at at a sentencing hearing or a sentencing mitigation hearing and if the court finds that you were abused and it was a substantially related to your crime then you can be entered into a lower sentencing um, category basically or range And so that's the forward-looking piece. And then the most important part of the bill that we feel very passionate about, obviously not just because of April, but because we've uncovered many, many other people like April. This is not just a one-off. And that's what people tell me, like, well, why are you making a bill just for one person? And it's like, you don't understand. This is actually a very pervasive Mm -hmm. problem. Mm -hmm. I see these people. They write me letters. We've gotten over 150 surveys back from Mabel Bassett alone. And not all of those people would qualify for relief because of the way their crimes happened, but a lot of them would. Mm. And um, so the bill has to have a look back where people who are currently serving prison time can apply for resentencing and get a shorter sentence. Mm -hmm. And it's in there right now. Basically, the same sentencing procedure that would apply to you on the front end of the bill would also apply if you're already in prison. Mm-hmm. You just have to go through the procedure to fill out the application and go before the court. And they have to, again, find that, you know, this did happen and you have to have the documentation, which is mm-hmm. another hurdle that people have to have, especially on some of these older cases where documents just don't exist anymore. Mm-hmm. But that's the burden that we have to put them up against. You know, we can't just say yeah. like anybody can go because then everyone starts freaking out that, oh, my God, everyone's going to get out. It's not about everybody's getting out. It's not about letting out dangerous criminals or anything like that. It's about giving these people who would not have been in prison had they not been a victim. (laughs) Their victimization is the reason that they committed their crime. And those people deserve a chance to have a shorter sentence than someone who just committed their crime without that. So that's the basis for it. So we've been working for two years uh, to get a bill like this introduced and running in the Oklahoma legislature. We had one last year. It didn't pan out the way we wanted it to. So this year, um, we've gotten some really great authors. Pro Tem Tree in the Senate. He's the president of the Senate. Um, and then we've got floor leader John Eccles in the House. Who have He's a representative in the House of Representatives in Oklahoma. And they have seen the movement behind this. They've seen our community organizing and our powerful, mm-hmm. powerful voices that have been lifted on behalf of these survivors. It's really very heartening and, yeah. and it makes me feel hopeful about the future of our state. So the bill is SB 1470 and it is about to go before the Senate Judiciary Committee. It is a, really I say to people, it's the least we can do because least. <laughs> we are not going to stop domestic violence we're not going to prosecute domestic violence we're not going to answer domestic violence calls very effectively um not yet not yet i don't have like a lot of <laughs> hope what that we're doing next. those main <laughs> things are going to change and so in a landscape like that where you have such pervasive domestic violence like we have in our state 
there are going to be a certain percentage of people that fall through the cracks like this Mm -hmm. in the legal system. They have done something as a response to their victimization that we find untenable as a society. They need to have some criminal consequences, we think. I would like us to get to a place where we're not prosecuting victims at all. That would be great. <laughs> yeah. But we're not there yet. And so what we, <laughs> the least that we can do is not sentence them to life in prison. Yeah. There's just so much. Like you said, if this case was tried today, it would have just been, we would have brought all this understanding, all this knowledge that we have now about all the different factors that went into April's case. So I really encourage you guys to listen to Panic Button Podcast and talk more about or just hear the details of April's life story as well as her trial. Cause that I think was the biggest like tripping at the finish line kind of moment. Like I think they're even back in that era, you could have really made a self-defense case, but it was like the case never happened. It's almost like her attorney just didn't show up with the, the weight that he needed to bring to really show up for April to make the self-defense claim. Yeah. I and mean, there was just so many whiffed, whiffed balls and that and yes. like even now when I look at the trial transcripts because we just did some filings on her and so I had to go back and look and the the crime scene evidence uh, like as a true <laughs> crime person I know, like I know. I know they say when you go to jury selection like don't think that this is like gonna be like CSI or don't think that this is gonna be um like whatever dun dun <laughs> what's that one um criminal minds. criminal minds <laughs> don't think it's going to be like that because this is the real world and we don't have those kind of tools and it's like but but didn't you have like eyes because yeah i mean <laughs> it's honestly you can see from the way he's laying on the ground you can see the way his foot right. is positioned that he was lunging you can see like the, where the bullet the holes. way the bullets went in yeah. you can see that his hand was out towards her you can see that and then the prosecutor gets up in her closing argument and just makes up a story about how he was sitting in a chair playing music when she came down the stairs barreling down there with a gun in her hand with malice intent and she says that at closing and no one refutes it. No one says anything. This is crazy. That's and, insane. And you're just sitting there like listening. You're reading these trial transcripts like this cannot be our justice system. Yeah. But it is. Ugh. Yeah. There were so many moments during when I was listening to Panic Button that were like scream in your pillow kind of moments where you're like, ah! like, I cannot believe that that really happened to a human like to April who again, by all accounts, was such a stand-up human being. She was a great mom. She was running her own business that was a really advanced, like, intricate... Medical technology business. Yes. I mean, she was such a badass by, like, every benchmark, and I'm really hoping I get to meet her and get to take you guys along for that because I'm kind of fangirling over (laughs) her. I'm not going to lie. I just feel like she, she just really, like, did some cool things with her life. She was a very productive member of society and never was disrupting anything in her life until this happened and I think that needs to be taken into account when you're looking at sentencing someone to their entire life you know and anyway I back to the bill this bill would not just help someone like April but also other women who are in similar situations so in a sense like rather than like retrying April or like sort of beating a dead horse with the court system there Mm -hmm. Appleseed is championing this legislation to you know basically going forward someone who's in this situation can have a lower sentence. So talk to us about the timeline of events. You know, we touched on the fact that it's going to Senate committee. I'm going to have a timeline graphic on our social media, also on the websites, but let's just like lay out for them in the podcast episode, what hurdles this bill has. Yeah. So it's really crazy when you're living in a world where passing a bill is easier than getting relief in a court of law because (laughs) normally it's just a one-off you go to court you get your ruling and you're done but in Oklahoma our courts make everything very difficult and so we're in a position where we actually have a better shot at passing a law than getting relief in court which is crazy but it's still not easy to pass a law very lots Mm -hmm. of hurdles um we have what's called a bicameral legislative system every state in the U.S. has a bicameral system that means there's a house and a senate and everything in a bill that is in there has to pass as it is both the house and the Senate to make it to the governor's desk. So any changes that ever get made, those have to go back to the opposite chamber, get approved, go back again, and then to the governor. So it's a very frustrating process and there are about a million ways to kill a bill and only one way to pass it. Mm -hmm. But 
That being said, um, it has to go to Senate committee because it's originating in the Senate. The Senate author is pro tem Greg Treat, and it's going to go before the Senate Judiciary Committee here in the next week or two. We think probably next week from this recording, but I don't know when this is going to go <laughs> out. And I also don't know when that date's going to be. But it, it just goes before a committee of, I think, 10 or 11 people, and we have to get the majority votes of those. Um, and then it gets scheduled for a floor vote in the Senate, which we have about 50 members in the Senate, and we have to get a majority of those. And that has to happen before March 30, March, March 29th. 12th? Okay. March yeah. 12th. Yeah. Maybe. I don't have the timeline up, but I'm sure that's right. We'll oh, have wait, the no, exact dates in the timeline. Let me see. Or you can just strike me. Oh, I have that. it. Okay. Senate vote has to happen before March 21st. Yes. So that's the deadline for bills to come out of the Senate. Let's start in the Senate. Then you basically start over again and you go, <laughs> uh, you enter into a House committee. You get assigned to the House committee. Mm-hmm. You have to pass the majority of the House committee. That has to happen before. April 12th. 12th. And then you have to pass out of the general house, which is about a hundred members, closer to a hundred members, um, before April 25th. Mm-hmm. And those are the general session deadlines. And then it goes to the governor's desk after that. There are some more complicated things that could happen to the bill. If people believe they want to change things about the language, they want it to go into what's called a legislative conference, which can go all the way to the end of May. <laughs> But we're really hoping that doesn't happen because that happened to us last year. And and I really feel good about where the language is at. A lot of people are very happy with where the language is at. So I don't anticipate us having to do that. I'm hoping we don't have to. But uh, again, things can just sort of happen. Mm -hmm. Um, So these committee meetings, uh, Colleen was explaining to me, are like almost more pivotal. Obviously, the vote is how it actually gets passed. And that's where there will be more of like press hoopla and things like that. But the committee is where the first iteration of this bill was actually killed because they were getting hung up on the language and they wanted to take out some of the most important pieces of the bill. So this is actually the second iteration of this legislation. And you know, we're hoping that we're going to be watching those committee meetings, basically. So if you guys are following along with this, definitely pay attention to those dates. And then also, I think you were saying that um, Governor Stitt's wife is working on a lot of domestic violence related things. And so she's kind of hopefully going to help, you know, put a bug in his ear about getting this signed. Sarah Stitt, First Lady Sarah Stitt has been very active in the second chance area of policy. So she has an act actually named after her that passed a couple of years ago, the Sarah Stitt Act, Mm -hmm. that ensures that people leaving prison can have all their documents, all of their training um, records of the occupational training they've done, and they can have an ID when they leave, which is very important. And so she was the namesake for that bill. Mm-hmm. She, when we were getting folks commuted back in 2018 and 2019, she had a second chance career fair outside of Eddie Warrior Correctional Center full of like jobs that they could just walk straight out and fill out an application for. So she's very passionate about, she just came out with a story in the Tulsa world about her, her work around hope and how hope is like a science. And so, you know, there are bright spots happening in Oklahoma and I think she's one of them. And, um, I know that her heart is with a lot of these survivors. And then also Mm -hmm. pro tem treats wife has been very active in domestic violence. Um, she's on the board of YWCA Oklahoma city. Um, and she's been a very outspoken advocate for survivors. So I know we're, I know we've got great company, um, working on this. Yeah, so stay tuned on those dates. And then I'm also going to be posting a graphic with all of our, like, um, advocacy days. Those are opportunities for you guys, if you're in Oklahoma or wanting to travel here, where we will meet at the Oklahoma State Capitol to kind of rally support around this bill and maybe knock on some doors and talk to legislators. We do have lobbyists that work through Appleseed to help champion the bill. And, you know, they're professionals at it, but we can always do more to show our legislators that we are watching this bill and that we're wanting it to get passed. And that we care. Yes. We really, really care about what they're doing and that we see them doing something good and we think them for doing something good yeah and we just really need them to maintain the spirit and the letter of what the intent of this is is to help not just survivors going forward but those who have been in prison for decades amen to that (laughs) um yeah so let's talk about how people can help calls to action 
Do you want to take it away? Yeah. I mean, there's so many things you can do. You can go to OKSurvivorJusticeCoalition.org and sign up to join the movement. That will put you on a list of volunteers. That gets you our emails when we're going to the Capitol, all of our events, um, any calls to action about the bill specifically, like, oh, it's going on this agenda. We need you to call these people, Mm -hmm. those kinds of things. But then also... Um, you can just find out who your legislators are, your senator and your representative, and mm-hmm. call them. Their phone numbers are on the House and Senate websites. You can leave a message with their legislative assistants. Sometimes they're not there, but you have to tell them, please notate that I want my senator or my representative to support SB 1470. Mm-hmm. Uh, it is important for you to say, I want you to write this down for him or her. Mm-hmm. And um, they do take note and they do take those back to the, to their members. And so that's a good way to do it. Um, also emailing is fine. Mm-hmm. You should be able to get to their con they have contact forms on each of their sites for like when you look up their names, they come up with mm-hmm. a little site for their emails. Um, so contacting them, going up to the Capitol, setting meetings with them, you know, they mm-hmm. are your representatives. You don't yeah. have to be someone with power or money to access no. them. That's not how it they should be. They work for you. That's right. Yes. And they, the, I go up there a lot and it always is a little bit disheartening to see, you know, the same 50 or 60 people up there <laughs> every day. and. Yeah. You don't see your, just your average citizens kind of going up and telling them what they want to hear and what they want to see. Um, because we're just, we're, we're overworked, we're tired and we've got yeah. kids, we got stuff going on and it's hard to take time to go up there, especially if you don't live in Oklahoma city. So, 100%. um, it can be hard and intimidating, but like, honestly, once you do it, even once or twice, you yeah. feel like empowered and like they're listening to you and they care. Um, and they do most of the people up there, they really go into public service because they want to do something good. And this mm-hmm. bill honestly gives them a perfect opportunity to do something that is good for everyone. All of the people on both sides of the aisle have reasons why they support this. Mm-hmm. And it's not every day that they get legislation across their desk that can make almost everybody happy. Yeah. And this is, I mean, it hits so many chords. I feel like for, I feel like the reason it's getting, you know, a lot of support right now is we know that our, we have some of the highest incarceration rates across the board in the country. And so I think everybody is like, that's a problem. That's a huge, you know, tax dollar drain. And how can we like alleviate that? And I think this is a really obvious way. Also, if you are like intimidated to call or to go, please DM me and I can send you a script or like a little piece of paper that you can go and just drop off at someone's office. It really doesn't have to be complicated or scary. And I'm here to like handhold in any way that I can. So shoot me a DM on Instagram or, um, you know, feel free to email me. My email address is always in our show notes and I'm here to like help facilitate any advocacy that you want to do. I would also invite everyone who's listening to come up to the Oklahoma Capitol building on February 27th. We will be there with the coalition of folks that are fighting for this bill. It's We're calling it OK Survivor Justice Day. And we'll be there from 10 a.m. to 2 p.m. Um, we will be having we will have handouts, talking points, um, hashtags, you know, all kinds of QR codes, anything that you need to be a better advocate you don't have to know everything. You don't have to know really anything. Um, you just have to know, I care about survivors of violence and I want this bill to pass. That could be as simple as what you say. Yes. Um, even just having you there, your body there, that we mm-hmm. can show the support for this um, is very, very powerful. So I would invite you to come. Yes. And I also wanted to, to touch on, obviously, this is not going to be the last piece of legislation or last piece of work that Appleseed does. So how can they plug into Appleseed's community and follow future campaigns? So our most active platform is Instagram. Uh, our Instagram handle is at OK underscore Appleseed. We try to post about everything that we're working on. Um, this is just one of the projects that we have going. Like you said, we work on um, a lot of education stuff. We have another coalition going on education justice right now. So um, if you're interested in all that stuff, you can um, go to our website, okappleseed.org, and sign up for our newsletter. I will say I don't get that out as often as I should. <laughs> the Instagram and the Facebook page are really the places where you can get the most updated information. So. Perfect. And then we always end off, it's cheesy, but what is your favorite quote and why? 
<laughs> am I putting you on the spot? I did not prepare for this, but that's I'm just okay. going to say the one that comes to me is the one that's like, never doubt that a small, dedicated group of people can change the world. Indeed, it's the only thing that ever has. So I think that was Margaret Mead. And I think about that almost every day because like, well, a lot of the things that we don't like happening in Oklahoma are being led by a very loud minority. Uh, there's also a very loud minority working on good things. Mm-hmm. And, um, we just need to be a little bit louder. Will you guys help us be louder? Here are a couple different ways that you guys can do that. First and foremost, there is a petition link in our show notes. It has a ton of other resources linked on that page, such as the exact bill itself and lots of other information that further explain the bill. But if you're ready to sign, we would so appreciate your signature. Again, it's linked in our show notes. But you can also follow along with OK underscore Appleseed on Instagram and OK Survivor Justice on Instagram, where I will be posting quite a bit for calls to action. I'm also going to be posting a timeline of events so that you guys can follow along. Reaching out to your representatives in Oklahoma will help immensely. Or if you're from out of state, you can always reach out to our governor, our governor and let him know that you care about this. You can sign the petition regardless. It's just important to get pressure on our legislators so that they know that a lot of people are watching this and that we care about getting Senate Bill 1470 across the finish line. I just wanted to say a huge thank you to you guys for showing up here. I keep getting emotional when I'm recording this. I just know that you guys care so deeply and I wanted to thank you for caring so hard and for showing up and for helping us continue this fight. I think a lot of us in this community have been looking for a way to help domestic abuse survivors, especially here in Oklahoma. So this is one way we can do that. So if you have any questions, slide into my DMs, slide into my email inbox. Everything's linked in the show notes. And I hope you guys will take some action to help us support Senate Bill 1470. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe on whatever podcast platform you use to listen. A rate and review on that platform or a shout out on social media would mean the world to us and help us to be able to keep creating the news du jour and reach more people who need a calmer space to consume the news. But the best way to support all of our work is to become a patron at www.patreon.com forward slash sugar free media and that is also linked in our show notes you can follow us on social media at news du jour dot podcast on both instagram and tiktok you can follow my personal account at it's annie bowls on both platforms as well any little noises you may hear in the background are my rescue pup he has a little separation anxiety and always records with me We appreciate you listening and look forward to telling you about the news again next time on News Du Jour. Broadcasting from Oklahoma.